Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm talking to Andrew O'Hagan about the Grenfell Tower fire. What happened? What happened next? And what it means for politics? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. I spoke to Andrew Hagen in Cambridge about 10 days ago. There has been a lot of interest in his article about Grenfell. Quite a lot of pushback, including some quite angry pushback. We talk about that in the conversation too. You'll hear that towards the end. The London Review of Books in the current issue has published a series of responses to Andrew's article and Andrew's response to them. And you'll see how some of that plays out. That's all available at lrb.co.uk. We'll also tweet links to some of the other responses to the piece that have happened in the last couple of weeks. This is a slightly longer conversation than we normally have, and it is just me and Andrew talking. There was a lot to discuss and a lot to cover. I began by asking him, when did he first go to Grenfell and start researching this story? I went there on the 14th of June for the first time. That was uh, the first full day of the fire. And I didn't go right into the thick of it that day. I simply was struck as soon as I saw the images on television by how big a story this was going to be. That it was going to be not only a symbolic event in terms of the tower, that blackened tower beside the Westway in one of the richest countries in the world, a tower we already knew was full of immigrant families. I knew that would be powerful, but I knew that the reverberations through local and national government, through our sense of social housing, our sense of decency, equality, our sense of the media, and our sense of the individual writer, perhaps too, what job they might have to do in trying to unfurl it all, because it was so complex immediately. Within the first hours, the news reports were dense with conviction about who was responsible and why this had happened. And that's an invitation rather than a closure if you're a certain sort of writer. And so I think I spoke to Mary Kay Wilmers, the editor of the London Review, within a few days and said, I really think I should keep looking at this. And I was in the thick of it before long. And was the view from the beginning that this was going to be a pretty deep piece of reporting and that you were going to have to spend a lot of time there? I don't think we realised how extensive it was going to be from the beginning. I certainly wanted to spread my elbows, if you like, and really try to write it from beginning to end. And I have had a history, as have several contributors, of writing longer pieces for the paper, you know, about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks or about Bitcoin and the case of Satoshi Nakamoto. I had written at length, sometimes 20,000 words in the London Review, but nothing this length. This is 60,000 words. And that came over time, really. It got more complex as I began to see that we had almost, by the end, a full year of a united media conviction about what were the facts in this case and what they pointed to. And there were manipulations very deep in the mix with this story from the beginning, but they developed 
largely over time. So I saw that I had to stay longer, work harder and write at greater length. So can I read you a bit from the piece where you say, initially, like everyone else, I felt angered by the sight of the burning building. In time, hoping to get to the bottom of what happened there, I set up an office near the tower and took on researchers. I believe the public inquiry that May set out would be a whitewash, and I decided to examine the council's actions for myself. I imagined a Jeremiah would follow. I came with my agenda, and I wrote to everyone, and I briefed my colleagues, let's get the bastards. And I felt enthused by the general outrage and by the people on the ground who appeared to be saying the right thing. And then I listened more closely, and I began to notice the inventions, and I would check what was being said against the documents and emails, and I could see the manipulations, great and small, but persistent. So in in that year that you spent on this piece, yeah. are there one or two moments that stand out for you where, as it were, that switch happened, and you moved from the agenda you thought you had to what you ended up writing? Yes, there were a number of them, actually. They came maybe three to four months into the working on the story, where I sat down for lunch in West London with a group of local residents and activists and their accusations against the council were voluminous, endless, in some cases so personal as to be libelous. And I remember looking at the material, the notes that I was making, and seeing that it didn't dovetail with other things that I knew to be true that were coming out of the working logs, for instance, of the council. There were work logs suggesting exactly what officers had done at certain times during the emergency. They didn't square with certain parts of the story about the closure of the local library, for instance, which they talked about and referenced a lot. It wasn't actually a closure. It was an occasion where the old library, which was thought to be not fit for purpose, was being replaced with a new £18 million library across the road with better disabled access and and so on. And I found those kinds of problems coming up. People were, let me say, utterly understandably in a rage. I've never worked in a journalistic situation before where the rage persisted and, as it were, formed and malformed the data to the extent that the anger in this case did. And it was completely understandable rage. 72 people had been killed. And that rage continues to this day and we see it manifest even in the response. None of that surprises me. And even at the time it didn't. But it presented me with an absolutely clear challenge as a writer that you either please the crowd by repeating and echoing the sentences that come off that anger or you interrogate it. And you go back again and again to the data and the source material and try to offer up an impartial view, a fair view, which gives all views, in a sense, and takes everything into account that can be taken into account at this stage. And it somehow allows the reader access to a free way of thinking about it. Because I felt that most of the media coverage, even as recent as today, as we sit here, is still malformed by a wish-fulfillment drive, that they want the story to be a certain way so they will back the story that looks like it is that way. And as writers, I think we have a responsibility to examine that on every occasion and turn it up to the light. People won't always agree. One has to accept that. So you came with a lot of that anger, as you say here. Yes. So was there a period where you were being pulled both ways, that actually you would hear 
what you ended up writing and you felt that you were still being drawn to want to convey something else or did you kind of have a short period where you basically turned this story around? Well, there's that process that you know well, David, where you have to subject your preconceptions to some tough, patient analysis. It doesn't always come to that. Sometimes we quite happily dive through our lives being fans of what we already believed, like a football fan. We're for our team and we stick by it and we won't listen to reason. And that's the end of it. I understand that. I come from a big family of uh, Celtic football fans. But it has to be said that when it comes to something as important as this, you can't be overwhelmed by the passion, not your passion or others. And I had a huge amount of passion coming into this. I grew up in what is now called a social housing estate. I grew up in a council estate outside Glasgow. My father lived in a tower block at one point. We lived in a development that was brand new when we moved into it in 1970. And I've cared about social housing all my life. I've cared about the politics of local government all my life. And there was something in this story that spoke to me from the beginning. I wrote a whole novel, Our Fathers, where the chief protagonist is a house clearer and a house developer in Glasgow from the 1960s on during the great period of slum clearance. And so it's always been close to my heart, this business. That's not to say I have any specialist knowledge about it, but I certainly have passion and I came into this story wanting to understand if there was indeed a giant case to answer about social cleansing and about gentrification and about the ridding of rights and indeed properties available to people who need social housing in that particular area. So I studied it and burned every lamp to get to the facts on the matter. And the facts weren't always what The Guardian would have liked them to be or I would have liked them to be or any number of people in the area even would like them to be. So before we get on to the the facts and the things that you found out and also the reaction to that, The area itself, you know it in the sense that you lived nearby when you first came to London. So you know it from back in the 90s? Very early 90s, yeah. My first proper, I I hesitate to say flat, because it was a bunch of Scottish guys all living in one nice uh, place in Notting Hill Gate. And, you know, Portobello Road was our hangout. We got to know the area really well. I loved it there. I still love it. So I felt that I knew that part of West London pretty well. And you begin with conjuring up a picture of life in the tower before the fire, who lived there, what kind of a community it was, and it was a community. So one of the things that was conveyed quite quickly afterwards, and it particularly came across in the argument and fight in the end about the numbers and the the suggestion fairly early on that many, many more people died than actually did die, was it gave the impression that it might be quite a transient community or there'd be a lot of people there who might not be accounted for because no one actually knew they were there. That's not the community you describe. You describe something quite a lot more stable than that and also more of a genuine community than that. A very genuine community. I mean, they're a wonderful community there still. And in that building, these were people who worked hard, who paid their taxes, who believed in community, who helped each other both in happy and sad times who cooked for each other. I met, you know, dozens of Muslim women who spent their lives in and out of each other's houses, both within that block and outside of it in the larger estate beyond, cooking for each other, minding each other's children, providing essentially the kind of social network and support groups that we often look to the welfare state to provide. They were doing 
preschool care for each other. No special resources set aside, just their own good characters and sense of community. So I came in up against that very quickly that they were describing back to me a world, again, quite different from the media portrayals, but it was described in all those initial reports as this tower block full of poor immigrants, a kind of slum. Not one person I spoke to of the many hundreds I spoke to for this story described their conditions there as slum-like. They were very proud of their flats. They were actually for London, for inner London especially, rather sizable flats with big kitchens, decent-sized bedrooms. They loved their flats by and large. There were people who had very serious concerns about the state of the building and the refurbishment, and the Grenfell Action Group was relentless and actually constant when it came to bringing those issues to the attention of the council and the TMO, that's to say the tenant management organisation who actually ran the building and were in charge of the refurbishment. But those, those activists, they were doing a particular thing, responding to problems that they perceived about the block and the changes that were either required there or that were insufficiently well done there. But the residents themselves, the majority of them, loved living there. And the idea that came to be something of a cliché and came out of the mouths of broadcasters as if it was fact that this was somehow a place full of illegal immigrants. Actually, the police, the fire services, the social work department and every single charity found that to be untrue. This was not a building with these sort of strange sort of squatters flats full of illegal immigrants. We found in the end, mainly through the very dedicated work of the pathologists, that they could be quite exact about the number of victims that had been in this dreadful fire. And it struck me, I have to tell you, as quite abominable that people persisted in inflating the numbers. It was as if they wanted it to be worse than it already was. How could it be worse? 72 people losing their lives. But these numbers and the persistence, including pop stars and so on, tweeting as if the government or the local authority or the police or the hospitals or whatever conglomeration of powerful people was repressing the real figures. That was just evidence of, I think, of a kind of democratic deficit in this case. The, at the fringes of democratic groupings, as you've pointed out yourself in your writing, there's sometimes a moment where democracy almost turns into its opposite. It can become mob-like, it can become irrational, and in some cases, it can become quite totalitarian. Now, I wouldn't go that far in this case, but certainly there was an end of the populist spectrum in this case with Grenfell, where people were almost exhilarated by the new togetherness, the new political opportunity for togetherness that it, that it offered. That's understandable too. I've been in many campaigning situations in my life, and I know that exhilaration, and I know what it means, that if there's a chance to get the bastards, as I described it, to get these people, as they saw it, who were responsible for this botched refurbishment and for these deaths, then it brought them together. So I see clearly how that can keep people going. And you describe, and you do it at the beginning and you do it at the end, the pride people felt in these houses. I mean, their homes. But also, you know, a lot of this story is about inequality for obvious reasons, and, and this is a very unequal bit of a very unequal city. And yet there was also a pride in living in the area that you described, which is one of the most vibrant and exciting places to live in the whole of the United Kingdom, and that people you know, people could simultaneously be the victims of huge inequality and be very proud to live very close to some of the nicest bits of London. I mean, those things are both possible. 
I mean, maybe it's obvious to say that, but it has, it comes across in what you... I think it's important to say it, you know, that it's, to read a lot of the coverage and a lot, and to adhere to the angry responses only, you would think that the place was not only a slum, but some sort of hell zone of unhappiness for people. That same area of London in North Kensington was described repeatedly in the 19th century as the Avernus of London. Avernus being that part of mythological Italy where birds would drop from the sky, the stench and the toxicity was so bad. That's how that area was described. Charles Dickens in Household Words described it as this place that the piggeries and the potteries, perhaps the worst in all London for disease and for hygiene. That's the history that was overcome in that area when housing associations and the local council, in that area, especially initially housing associations, it's very different from, say, Camden or Islington in that way, that one of the reasons that you haven't lost a lot of social housing in Kensington and Chelsea, for instance, is because there's so many housing associations that don't sell properties. There's no right to buy effect in the way that there is in Islington, where they've lost 4,500 social homes in the last 20 years from people buying them and not replacing them. But to go back to your point, in Kensington and Chelsea, there was a sense in which that community did represent a success in a way, as well as many, many concerns and failings. And we must remember that if we're going to discuss it in an adult way, that it wasn't any longer awareness. And all you had to do to find that out or to check that was talk to the residents. The majority of them felt very lucky to have a decent flat in a decent part of London. They did. And to suggest that they were somehow cowering in their hovels, hating their lives, is just a complete misrepresentation. You write about the fire, and it is very hard to read. It is harrowing, and of course it is full of individually heartbreaking stories. There is also a heart-stopping moment in it. I mean, it genuinely made me stop reading, which is when you describe the outbreak of the fire in flat 16, I think it is. It was a fridge fire. And this relates to what we're going to talk about in a second, which is the firefighters' response. Eight firemen come to put out the fire, and everything about how firefighters respond to a fire in a building like this is about containment. That's the key word, right, isn't it? To contain it. And as you describe it, they don't notice that it has escaped at the back. And when you just read that bit, that as it were, they think they've put out a fire and they haven't, it takes your breath away. It took my breath away. I mean, it was a senior fire leader who told me that story on the record. I was very careful, even with stuff that had been said to me on the record, because I know the huge sensitivities involved. People often forget what they've said to you in a journalistic situation. I have, you know, multiple hours now of tapes of people offering those heart-stopping moments. And when that particular person told me that the firemen had come out of the building thinking their job was done, they'd put out a kitchen fire, they were about to climb back into their vehicle, they hadn't noticed that it had escaped out of the window onto the exterior cladding or gone beneath behind it and had set it alight. And that's, of course, the moment when this goes from being a kitchen fire contained in a building where stay-put rules would be completely appropriate uh, into an absolutely devastating, torrid fire that was going to kill 72 people. That's the moment right there. And heart-stopping is right. So the containment advice, it does 
lead to the stay put advice. So the, the whole strategy in a block like that where there isn't a way out for people at the top is you have to contain it. That initial failure, which it is a failure to notice what had happened to the fire, but then the, the much longer as you describe it, failure to change the advice. Are those two things connected? I mean, as it were, did did the mindset not shift quickly enough? People still it. thought it was containable I think past the point it. when I it mean, was. There's a number of things to say there. The first thing is that firefighters, good men and women who are brave every day, let's just say that. I know it's a cliche about them, that one's sometimes accused of forgetting that, and I've never forgotten it. I've spoken to many of them. It's an incredible job to do. And they do it, by and large, brilliantly and bravely. Every day, as we speak, women and men with heavy gear are climbing into buildings to save people's lives. Let's not forget that. The stay put advice is standard advice in many countries when it comes to tall buildings for a simple reason. It's a life-saving mechanism. If you immediately evacuate a building where there's been one put-outable fire in one unit, you may cause mass harm on the stairs as everybody evacuates at great speed and there could be a crush. We've got examples of this in the past when this has happened. During the Blitz, for example, there was a terrible crush, people may remember, in a tube station when too many people tried to get out at once. So we know that that's to be avoided. There was a sign beside the lift at Grenfell Tower, as there is beside the lift in many towers, saying in the event of a fire, the policy is to stay put, report the fire and stay where you are and the firefighters will come to you and put the fire out. That's the intention. But what happens in the not entirely unprecedented case where a fire spreads across the exterior of the building, invalidating the stay put policy entirely? There is no putting out the fire and there is no containing the fire at that point. There is only the careful evacuation of the residents. Now at Grenfell, I have suggested, and not only me, I mean, I'm taking the flack for it, but the inquiry in the last couple of weeks has pointed out in full agreement with me that the building was not evacuated quickly enough. Now, that's not about single firemen and women failing. That's about a failure of command and a failure of instruction and perhaps, might I say, a failure of tradition when it comes to these events. We should have learned from the Lackanall House fire in South London several years ago, which taught us that these flames could spread across plastic cladding outside of a building and endanger life. Six people were killed at Lackanall. And there was an approved report produced, which was sent after that event to all local councils and to all firefighters. They should have known that this fire was grievous and dangerous from the minute they saw a lick of it near the cladding, then a concerted evacuation of that building, which might have taken 40 minutes, but there was two hours, over two hours, when people were still in their flats being told to stay there further up the building. And it cost them their lives, I'm afraid. The other thing that I didn't know, and again, made me stop reading while I was reading it, was your description of the refuse rooms, the rubbish rooms, the sealed rooms and chutes, which after the fire had finally burnt out and been contained, turned out to be relatively undamaged and secure. There were safe spaces in this building. There were some safe spaces, and that, again, is one of the frustrations, because we're all just asking questions here. Can I remind you, you know, I'm not coming at you with all the answers. How could I? You know, there's a big inquiry. Still, It's only just begun. There are criminal charges to be brought or not brought. That should all be due process. It's all happening. I'm not here in advance to give you all the answers. I'm here to raise a whole lot of questions that weren't raised before. 
full stop. And one of them was that there was in each floor a sealed unit, sealed because the smell of bins and so on and escaping burst bags and so on wasn't welcome in any floor. So these were safe units and chutes. Now, we don't know for sure whether they would have been oxygenated during the worst of the fire. So it's not for me to suggest that if everybody had just gone into those rooms, they would have been safe, but there's the chance. But nobody mentioned them at the time. And again, it's one of the failings of preparation for fire. Fire safety and measures weren't entirely, shall we say, perfect in that situation. Those people weren't even aware that that might have been an option and that nobody was saying that to them on the phone. People on the ground who might have had plans from the TMO or the local authority. I know that some people from the local authority immediately sought floor plans of the building. I have a source from the council who did that, who told me that, and that they sourced them immediately from the TMO so they could understand the floor plan and give better instruction through the fire service and through the emergency service. People were calling. Emergency services were asking for information. And of course, we now know, too late, that they should have been able to say to them, well, at the very worst, go into the sealed bin area. But that, that, that didn't happen. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One of the things that came out very quickly afterwards and, and still, I think, shapes a lot of the narrative and you write about it at length, is the fact that before the fire, activist residents who were complaining about um, what they saw as the failures of how the building had been refitted were warning that a tragedy might happen. And to correct me if I'm misdescribing this, but what you essentially say is that there were a litany of warnings and a litany of complaints about things that they thought weren't being done right. And then there was the event and the event was not traceable back to the things that were being complained about, broadly speaking. Unless one includes the question of sprinklers. You know, there is an argument that had there been sprinklers, it might have made a difference in that one flat. But of course, once the fire had made its way onto the cladding, sprinklers wouldn't have helped the people there. But other than that, there certainly was no complaint previously about the cladding. It's just to be clear, again, what we're trying to do is get the right questions out there. One of them being, what were those warnings? And if they had been heeded, would it have prevented the loss of life? And we have to say that there was no question ever raised about the cladding itself. If the cladding turns out to have been the really fatal item in all of this, and it's looking very like that, that the fire spread was so devastating across the cladding that that's where, if you like, uh, we're going to have to look for an explanation. But none of the very active, very energetic and ceaseless complaints from the action group touched on that cladding, that part of the refurbishment. I hasten again to say, people, in this passionate debate, people think if you're not supporting everything that's being said, it means you're invalidating what they were. I'm not invalidating. The Grenfell Action Group were a powerful representative group for the community and its rights for a long time. It just happens to be, in answer to the question, did they warn them about the cladding? The answer is no. 
but they warned them about other things and they perhaps point to a lack of carefulness on the part of the TMO in responding to warnings about safety in general. I say that in the piece. That's been ignored, but I do say that. That the action group warned persistently, but there was something else crept into this and it's to do with politics. And it is that the way they complained became an echo chamber because they were very, very persuasive among their own uh, group and among, as it were, people who were already on their side. But what we need to understand when it comes to uh, improving local government situations is that the group never managed to find a way to speak convincingly to their opposite numbers in there at the council or the TMO, that there was a sort of failure of communication there which didn't work well for the residents in the end. It was described to me by one observer as an echo chamber, that they were fantastically effective at activating each other. But actually an action group in the end is about action. And there was a f the communication, which is probably a failure at both ends. They were both full of dislike by, by 2017. People in the council and the TMO didn't like them any more than they liked the council and the TMO. So there's a failure of communication there that didn't prove effective when it came to making changes that should have come about. Well, I was going to say, I think a lot of people would assume that the, the bigger failure was the failure to hear, not the failure to get the message across. I think that that would be a fair point. That the, the TMO precisely, because they were responsible for making these changes, it's got to be stressed that the council may have all sorts of things to answer to. And they certainly have some to answer to. The TMO, though, were the people responsible for that building, not only for its renovation, but for its day-to-day -day running, for its safety and for the implementation of decent practices and building and construction and so on. And you're absolutely right. If people are making a lot of noise about various problems within a building that is run by a tenant management organisation whose only job it is, is to look after all the properties in that borough who come under their care, then, of course, the listeners should ask themselves some questions now, or the non-listener, as it might be. But in the end, it was the council for reasons of politics and emotion and other things that will come to, I think, that bore the brunt of people's rage and certain individuals who you write about, and we'll talk about in a second, on the council. Now, this is partly straightforwardly because it was a Tory council and this was a story about people who were poor, and disadvantaged in a very, very wealthy borough. And lots of stories spread very quickly, including that you know, the refurbishment had been failed because it was an aesthetic judgment made by people who lived further away, didn't want to look at an ugly building and so on. Now you write, I think it's fair to say it's one of the things that makes this such an unusual piece of writing is that you write clear-sightedly but sympathetically about the councillors, particularly about Rockfielding Mellon. And you actually spend quite a lot of time on his backstory. It's an interesting person but you also you know you talk about some of the key documents so the email exchange about the cost of the cladding and so on and you do say at various points he and other people but he was doing his job I mean insofar as he was he in conversation with the TMO were trying to get a cheap option here it was because saving money because as far as they knew it was safe I mean they weren't making a judgment about safety saving money was part of the job but also that this was not a penny pinching council and people, I think, of all the things that you say, that these are probably the things that people find, is, find it hardest to hear. In the climate that we're in, not only in London or Britain or Western Europe, but I think in the world now, that things are so partisan. I think there's such a sense now 
of them and us that as soon as you announce your interest in certain kinds of facts, you're almost separating yourself off from the people who don't believe in those facts. That you're immediately, as it were, even as a journalist who's looking for impartiality, just looking at evidence and data, that you're somehow pinning your colours to the mast. I mean, to me, it's a ridiculous notion. I'm interested in examining the truth and raising questions about the truth. What I found when I examined the emails between people at the TMO and the deputy leader of the council, Rock Fielding Mellon, the man you mentioned, who was in charge of housing, what I found was that it was very clear in the emails from him that it wasn't his job to choose the insulation or the cladding, and he knew that. They came to him, as it were, to show him what they were looking at, and he expressed a view about the colour. And they would say things to him, specific things like, we had hoped to make a saving by using aluminium rather than zinc. Now, he didn't say, fantastic, make a saving, we love saving money, go ahead and do it. People wanted him to have said that. They reported him as having said that. But again, dispassionately, when I looked at the emails, there was no email where he said that. He simply didn't say it. And I think people were merely talking about, you know, the affront was these people were talking about money when lives were at stake. But of course, those two things are... People talk about money in councils all day, every day. It is part of the job. That's what they do. You know, it's public money. They must make decisions about whether to build a new school and how much to spend on it and who should be the contractor. And let's look at the figures. I mean, I'm not here to defend or ever will be here to defend particular councils or councillors. I'm talking about councils right across the country. That's why... 308 tower blocks in Britain ended up with cladding exactly like that. Many of them Labour councils. So let's be grown up about it and say this was not a Tory move to clad poor people's housing in flammable material because they hate poor people. That's just not true. Now, the negligence that will come to discuss and that will become obvious as the inquiry proceeds will make it plain how individuals in their jobs and perhaps even a political culture in some of those places, encourage the notion that you could save money here or you could save money there in a way that you might not want to if you cared more about poor people. But I have to say, I never found evidence of that in Kensington and Chelsea. I found, to my utter shock, as an old lefty, I couldn't believe it. I kept coming up against evidence that they had a rather sort of persistent history there of trying to support voluntary groups, arts groups. I finally found from Ofsted that the schools and the judgment on the schools was better than most places in the country, that the attainment gap between children who have free school meals and those who don't is narrower in that borough than almost anywhere else in the country. Now, I know these are the kind of statistics that people say, well, I either buy that or don't buy that, but that's a traditional measure when you look at poverty in Britain today is those kids who are having free school meals, are they falling behind? And the answer in that bar was no. And so that tells you something. It doesn't tell you everything, and it doesn't answer the central question that you're posing now, which is, did that council leave those people vulnerable? The answer to that is, I don't know overall. The inquiry will tell us that, but I know that those specific individuals who became pantomime villains and whose names were spray-painted on walls, they personally never pursued a policy of that sort that I could find. Other people disagree, but they don't produce the evidence when they disagree. I asked them for it for a year. 
I asked them again and again, show me where they have killed social housing in order to make way for private developers. I couldn't find it, they couldn't supply it. And I could only find the opposite, that they had actually, in the Sutton estate in Chelsea, for example, those councillors that, that we're talking about, they stopped a redevelopment of that place because the redevelopers did not have enough social housing in their programme. They stopped it. I mean, that's just one example, but it's what we're discussing, David, about, you know, accountability is a very complex thing, but you need to have a very good reasoning and utterly, I mean, clear evidence to accuse individuals of mass murder. And that's what this comes down to. There was the search for the villains before, there was the search for the villains after. And again, the council was in the firing line pretty early on. It was neglecting the victims, it wasn't supporting them. One of the things reading this piece made me think about was the different varieties of courage. And you've talked about firefighters and physical courage, and I couldn't do that. But I also found myself thinking something else I couldn't do was the people after the fire, when the world's media was there, and the kind of vehemence of the emotional response was kind of lapping around everything that people were doing, trying to get on with their jobs. And you, you make the point it's almost sort of a part of now increasingly local government, which is there is a sort of hostility and a disdain for what some people in fairly low-level jobs are doing just to try and keep this show on the road. And that was happening here too. And those people almost weren't being recognised for who they were because the victims would say, well, the council haven't helped me because they hadn't recognised that the people who were helping them were from the council. Or that the other people who were helping them were also funded by the council. There was nobody from the council wearing a tabard saying Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea. They were absolutely useless in terms of their public relations as far as I'm concerned. You might say, what has public relations got to do with response to an emergency nowadays everything the media from the beginning was saying where's the council when the 360 people at the council who were working all hours there offer a different picture of what they were doing over those days i mean people can argue about that or whether they did it well enough or whether they did it visibly enough but they weren't ignoring it in my findings but what was noticeable i mean here we are talking politics And actually, there was so much politics in it from the beginning that it was kind of merciless that even the media presence became political. What the media wanted from the story was politics from the beginning. Of course, they wanted human interest, but what they really wanted was politics. I can't think of a case like it, including Hillsborough, where politics was clear in the story from the beginning, if you look back to something at Aberfan, a terrible disaster in 1967, a school and other parts of the town being crushed by a landslide coming down. I mean, that was a terrible thing to have happened, a terrible oversight that it could happen. Yet it wasn't political from the moment it started where hatred was being expressed. And I think it has as much to do with austerity and Brexit and a feeling that is abroad now in the country that politicians are an elite that they exist as a sort of privileged class apart from the people and that the media is sometimes part of that class and sometimes not. It depends what channel, depends if they're your friend or not. There's a separation now, and it's a political separation, and it came home to roost with this story because people on the ground were feeling almost from the beginning that this was allowed to be one story only. It was the story, and the media agreed instantly, the story of rich, double-barrelled named Tories killing poor immigrants. 
that was the headline and that was going to be held to. It's being held to still today. When you ask for evidence of every word in that sentence, people will provide as much as they can. But for me, it was always a headline that people felt was true rather than something they could prove was true. Certainly, something went desperately wrong there. And I can't wait for every bit of truth to come out about it. But it seemed to me for a long time the, the wrong questions were embedded, you know, that people wouldn't question their own narrative at all. Even journalists wouldn't question their narrative. Even if they didn't have the evidence, it was the narrative they wanted. So, so then some bad guy comes along and says, why don't you look at your narrative? And they quite understandably say, why don't you look at yours? And I can take that on the chin. The politicians who bore the brunt of it were the local politicians. And yet, and you describe it in a way that um, I think a lot of people will recognise as as the worst of our politics now, our national politics. You know, there are Tory villains in this piece if people want them. Of course. And the their, na- their names are Theresa May, our current Prime Minister, and Sajid Javid, potentially our next Prime Minister. I mean, that to me was also somewhat revelatory. Yes. You know, they had a terrible few days, week, in political terms. Nothing to the human tragedy, but for them politically. And I think we can all remember maybe 24, 36 hours where the government looked like it might fall, frankly, certainly when Theresa May went to visit. But you described the behind the scenes, and I hate to say it because there's nothing funny about this, but it has a kind of thick of it quality, the panic, the absolute panic of the national politicians and the blame shifting. And they, as quickly as the media alighted on the full guys and it was the double-barreled toffs in Kensington and Chelsea Council. I mean that was one of the most cynical and opportunistic things about the whole story. I've been surprised that in people's eagerness to defend their narrative and their belief in the narrative that they haven't noticed that what's at the absolute core of my story is perhaps the best sourced account of May's government in freefall that we've had because it was sourced from the very inside that people were so, pardon the pun, dismayed by her her treatment of the story, her sudden reckoning that this could bring her down. Some people close to her told me that she was having a sort of nervous breakdown. She thought that this would bring down the government, that it so played into the hands of her opposite number, Jeremy Corbyn, and his core message. She thought... Grenfell is the end of me, so close to a recently fought election, which didn't turn out so brilliantly for her. I mean, she squeezed through, but it was one of those rare occasions when the person who won appeared sort of to lose, and the person who lost appeared kind of to win. And the constituency of Kensington was one of the symbols of this, after all. Indeed. And the unlosable constituency had been lost. That's right, and with 20 votes. It was an incredible political moment, and she is enough of a political operator to have noticed that, as is Sajid Javid. The problem is that political manoeuvring and self-interest at a time of national tragedy is a disgrace. And that's the central disgrace that I describe. It's a disgrace of such massive proportions in my head in terms of uh, how we live, that our representatives at the top of government were more interested in their careers and saving their skins than they were in fixing a plan for the recovery and the serving of these victims at Grenfell Tower. They were interested again and again, my sources showed me, and I relate this to the readers, 
in seeing what was the best strategy for appearing to care in the eyes of the media and the wider community. And that strategy, as you say, was to throw the council to the dogs. Now, it's not for me to say in the end whether the council did well enough in their negotiations with Sajid Javid and the Prime Minister to prevent that. What I saw, though, was a council, a whole borough, in distress, yet commanding as much effective relief as they could. They're quite a small borough, Kensington, Chelsea, compared to some of the bigger ones in the country. I mean, they've got 10,000 social homes. I mean, they're not, it's not a big concern. I mean, they had a few full-time and a couple of part-time PR people, eight and all in rotation. They couldn't handle the press interest and they couldn't handle the new demands on them. That was just in that one department. But the other departments were getting on with it. But Theresa May never at one point said, look, this is an emergency. We'll have COBRA meetings. We'll activate London Resilience. We'll be in charge of that. We will have committee meetings every day. We will join hands with the council in order to come to the rescue of the people of Grenville Tower and that estate. They never did that. They left the council to, in their eyes, fail. We can raise questions about what that failure was and whether the media ever really investigated it properly, whether they did fail. Put that to one side. She sold the idea and Sajid Javid even more divorced the council, divorced them very publicly in parliament, talking about their failings and so on without once referencing the possibility that he could have done better and the government could have done better in coming into partnership with them at an early stage. Maybe this is, I don't think this is unfair to him, but maybe this isn't treating them the same way. I wasn't so shocked by May, actually. So she had just been through that election. She was the prime minister and her government, there were moments where you know her government was tottering in this and she was having a kind of breakdown then, but she had a breakdown on the night of the election. I mean, she was this was the absolute low point of her career. It's Javid that shocks me. So he was the local communities minister. I mean, who cares about his career? Like he's, she's the prime minister. She does actually have an obligation if she can to keep her government together. And prime ministers do sometimes do the most terrible things and she wouldn't be the first. But what the hell is he doing? I actually, I found myself surprised by how I took it that that's the Theresa May I kind of feel I'm familiar with, but this guy is now our Home Secretary. What the hell? Well, my Whitehall source close to him was so turned off by his behaviour that he contacted me in order to say, you know, this was a piece of pure politicking. And that's how politicians behave, or at least that's how that politician behaved, he said. And I'm afraid that when you look at those phone calls between the council leaders, the town clerk, and Sajid Javid and May were also on those calls that I describe in detail. Sajid Javid and Theresa May pressed the council to make a promise that people would be rehoused in three weeks. That council has been castigated, not to say crucified, ever since for not fully rehousing people, not only within three weeks, but within the many months since then. But the council was saying the whole time we cannot, that is ludicrous. We do not have the housing. We do not have the means. It takes much longer. The people themselves, the victims, won't be ready, some of them, to move into housing, even temporary housing. Some of them didn't want to leave the hotels at that stage. But the promise, nevertheless, was forced upon them by those national politicians who then wanted to appear 
before the House of Commons and say that they had made sure that promise would be made, a promise that couldn't be fulfilled. Now, that is deep political cynicism at its British worst. And I'm afraid, holding no candle for any of those councillors, I didn't know them, I don't partake of their politics. The facts are the facts. They told those politicians in Westminster that they could not deliver this, but they agreed to it under pressure and then took the flak ever after. And it cost them their jobs and May and Javid are now running the country. I want to read one more thing. This is towards the end. Um, And then to talk a bit about how the piece has been received. And even today, there's an article in The Guardian today. I mean, as you say, there's a pretty raw emotion around this still. Seeing the tower on fire was like an alarm going off, waking up all the good people as well as all the bad and negligent ones. But could we tell them apart? Oh yes, the good people were the ones who distinguished themselves by blaming other people. But what if the cause of those deaths wasn't a few conveniently posh people, but our whole culture and everybody in it, the culture that benefited some but not others, and supported cuts and deregulation everywhere? And as you say not so comfortable now and I was about to say as I look down that's uncomfortable reading I mean that's for anyone I mean you are saying us right you are you are not saying and I'm saying me I'm saying all of us you know look in the mirror before you very satisfiedly point the finger and say that person's to blame what about the idea that we're all to blame we've run this society we voted these people into power we've built these systems we've created these confusions I think that it's childish at best to imagine that we can persistently live in a world of old politics where there's always a party to blame, there's always a group of cynical, rich Tories somewhere, or there's a bunch of dog-eared old communists somewhere else, or there's some woolly liberals in the middle, or there's some you know, Scots Nats who are ploughing their own furrow. We always look to blame the person who doesn't represent our immediate beliefs and feelings, quite understandably. But what happens if our politics is changing? And actually something's changing in democracy and that it won't do anymore to simply find a convenient bucket to pour your blame and passion and disappointment and horror into. What happens if we've all made this society and we, to some extent, bear a responsibility um, for looking at it and saying... If there's been deregulation for years and years and years, and if there's been lack of safety in our refurbishment programmes of public housing and so on, why did we never notice? Why was that building beside the Westway, that terrible black building as it is now, why did we never know that those people lived there or the conditions that they lived under or the complaints they made? Or why did we never care? Why did we never take an interest? And do we know where our cleaners live? as we send them off on a Friday with money stuffed in their hand. This is the society we live in, and I sometimes think that middle-class complacency is forgotten as a complacency. It's not just politicians that got this wrong, local or national ones. We got it wrong. And the fact that I've said that, and the way that I've said it, has caused a lot of hornets' nests to be tipped over simultaneously. So I'm alone in a field surrounded by hornets, but I stand by what I found because I found it genuinely and not from a place of predictable political bias either, but from the genuine need to look at this afresh. And I hope that I have done. So one thing I know some people will say, and they have said it, it's part of what's in the article, in the critical article in The Guardian today, 
is a sense that when you talk about us, you, you are neglecting some of the local politics, actually. So not talking about the Grenfell Action Group, but as it were, the politics on the council and within the council, the people who have been trying to raise these issues or ones like them politically. Um, I mean, after all, in your piece, the council is simply the Tory council. But there is always pushback. Do you think that all of that, too, has somehow now just been trapped in this atmosphere? I mean, there is real local politics in local government, and a lot of it is about these issues, but it doesn't feature much in this piece. I think that in that particular case, in that particular borough, Labour politics had become quite ossified because all those years of not being in power at the council level is so destroying in a way. And lots of them have taken up brilliant and original and necessary campaigns for decades. I take my hat off to them. But they did not take up the refurbishment issues related to Grenfell Tower, let's be clear. And neither might they have. I mean, they were invisible to most people. And so in fairness to them, they've always been behind campaigns. They've always been against the Tories. But perhaps what I wanted from them was evidence. Evidence of these large claims being made by so many people that this was a straight, open and shut case of social cleansing gone wrong. I just simply couldn't get them and I sought help from them in making me support that view that so many have expressed. But I couldn't get the evidence from them. And in the end, I'm not some soothsayer who makes judgments on the effectiveness or not of individual local politicians. I can simply sift the evidence and present it to the readers and let them decide. And they are deciding. And one of the ways that they decide, by the way, is by writing critical articles in The Guardian. That's all as it should be. I didn't expect to have no pushback from government and the media and elsewhere. And of course, I've had some, but I've also had some of the most generous and interesting responses of my writing life. So it's par for the course. But I'll continue to ask these questions of that case because it was never, in the end, as clear-cut as many people wanted it to be. Andrew's full piece, the response to it, some of the videos that were filmed that go alongside it are all available at the LRB's website, lrb.co.uk. This weekend, we're doing a special live edition of Talking Politics at the King's Place Politics Festival, alongside all of your other favourite politics podcasts. You can come along and see me and Helen and Chris Bickerton. We're going to be talking about populism. A lot could happen between now and then. We're going to be talking about Angela Merkel, Theresa May, everything that might have changed in the next few days. It's going to be a great event. Do please come along if you want to hear us live. It'll be a lot of fun. If you'd like to get hold of a ticket, Follow us at tppodcast underscore and we will tweet the link. Join us next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. <laughs>